This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by our patrons. You can support the show like them at patreon.com slash the tome show. Welcome to Tome Book Club, March 2023. And we're recording it in March. Yay! Yay. Barely. <laughs> the Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book, cl- book club style. And our book this time around is Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, The Road to Neverwinter by Jalee Johnson. Boy, I always love it when there's a triple hyphen, or no, a triple, a triple title uh, for a book. We ran into that with some Star Wars books in the past, too. Yeah. The title, the subtitle, the sub-subtitle. Right. (laughs) It's like we're in the dungeon. With us, as always, is Eric Paquette. How are you doing? You know, I'm really hoping that this this book is Dungeons and Dragons related. I'm not sure. I can't tell from the title. I mean, it's <laughs> been a minute since we've discussed a new D and D, an actual D and D published book before. So, yes, a while. And and spoilers, and to complete surprise of everyone, next episode, which we'll record towards the end of April, which will be the surprise because we're only going one month. We'll be reading Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, The Druid's Call by E.K. Johnson. All right. So before we get started, I want to thank our patrons that help us pay the bills. You can help, too, by going to patreon.com slash the Tome Show and offering as little as a dollar a month. It's a very easy way to help the show do what it does. Um, and and I, I just checked in um, on the year so far, and we're actually down in patrons for the year so far. So... What up, y'all? Help me pay for the show <laughs> so we can keep doing it. So, all right, let's talk about. I'm just going to call it Road to Neverwinter because I'm not doing all three titles. Done it once and it's good enough. Yeah. So I, I found it to be an in- interesting take on The Princess Bride. It was. I could see that. You're telling the story with. I, yeah, it starts it, off with the telling a story to a kid. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Yep, and from time to time around around the book, you have interruptions by the kid about no, no, how how the story actually went. So, mm-hmm. uh, to be very clear so. to people, um, this is not a novelization of the movie. This is a prequel novel uh, for the movie. So this the story of of this novel takes place prior to the movie, but it is a tie-in to the movie. Uh, it involves. I believe, having not seen the movie yet, unlike some people in the the conversation, um, I believe it involves most of the main characters of the movie. Is that fair to say, Trace? Yes. Okay. Uh, Tracy has to be has to be very very careful in this recording because Tracy has seen the movie twice already, despite the fact that it doesn't come out for. Well, for 24 hours from when we're, we're recording. Well, probably earlier than that. But we're recording on, on Thursday and Friday it comes out. So, um, so yeah, Tracy has already managed to see it twice. So she has to be very, very careful to discuss the book and be able to answer pertinent questions, but also not spoil the movie. I know I have my tickets to see it on Saturday uh, morning. So... 
Um, I better not be spoiled, Tracy, or I'm coming to New York. Well, wait, I thought you're supposed to distance none of me. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yes, but so, so don't spoil it or I'm never coming to New York. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes. Eric, why don't you start telling us what is this book about? basically the origin of the thieves the like Edgin which is the main character which I believe is in the movie is uh, played by Chris Pine uh, character uh, meaning Holga uh, uh, Forge uh, Simon and, and several different roles and basically their first big heist uh, adventure as they're trying to steal the or get the staff of Arof. Interesting, because it's not, it's not even really, it's not really their first adventure, but it's sort of the, like it ends the the second half is really like their first adventure as a party. But there were like adventures yeah. before that, that both yeah. both on camera with individual sections of the party and off camera with the whole party. Um, and, and yeah, so it's sort of it's sort of the origin story of how they became a party, even though it's not the origin of all of the members of the party, because I happen to to have read the second prequel book already, uh, which we're going to read for next month. But I wanted to have them both read before I watched the movie. Um, and that one focuses on the druid character. Um, so I think it's the druid's call. Thus, the name Druid's Call, right? And I think she's on the cover. Um, but so at this point, I think I've been introduced to all of the main characters except one from the party in the movie, at least as I've gathered from from the, from what the trailers. From what I've gathered from the trailers, I gathered that the Paladin may be the only one that is not introduced in these books. Yeah, and and that's um, I was wondering if the paladin would show up in Druid's Call, and I don't want to go so far as to spoil things for a book that we have not agreed to read until next month. But um, but I have not I, yet. I saw, but, but but I have not yet met the paladin. So there we are. I saw an interview this morning on Geek and Sundry YouTube where they interviewed Chris Pine. August, uh, Michelle Rodriguez and I, unfortunately I forget the name of the actor who plays the paladin and he mentioned in the interview that he's basically a character that comes from somewhere else and gets brought in into this story so, so like that's why I'm like oh that's probably a character that we don't get to those in the book right maybe we'll, we'll see when we'll, we'll get a movie but anyways yeah <laughs> the book yeah See, I have to do a little bit of tiptoeing as well because there's things I want to talk about from the second book, the second prequel novel, because um, there's actually some interesting threads that connect that book and this book. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to spoil that because we haven't agreed to have read it yet. So, um, for those who are just listening, it is wonderful seeing Tracy just smiling and keeping quiet while, <laughs> while Jeff and I are just discussing this. Mm -hmm. Because 
Mm-hmm. I don't know, she's seen it twice already. So. Well, so here's the cool thing about with the movie plus reading it part of the one book is I actually felt for once probably how you guys normally feel knowing a bunch of like the lore and stuff and not being the complete newbie. Right. <laughs> uh, oh. But you don't so. need all of that to appreciate the book as far as I can tell or the movie. Right. And and, and that's one of the things um, that I... I found reading this book to be so incredibly enjoyable. Um, and, and it was, it felt like a return to home. Um, it has been so long since we've had Forgotten Realms novels that weren't, pub, uh, that weren't written by Bob Salvatore. Uh, and, and I enjoy the Drist character, but it is not um, the most thorough exploration of the realms, I guess I, I could say. Um, uh, you know, and, and I also missed having just new D and D novels. Um, I didn't realize how much I missed having sort of a, a shared frame of reference for shared world storytelling. Um, but you know, at one point in the story, Knowles attack the tavern. And they don't go into an in-depth conversation about what gnolls are or why they would be attacking the tavern. They just talk about gnolls attacking the tavern and and they're being dragonborn out there in the world and, and whatever, right? And they don't go into this depth and explanation because they're not having to build the, the setting and build the world. Uh, and, and, and we all sort of understand that there's a shared frame of reference and... I really enjoyed it. Not just because they they could throw me into it and I didn't and didn't have to explain everything, but it was just nice to have that shared sort of connection, that shared touchstone um, with the author, with the the story. Uh, and then the other thing, the other thing I realized was, I have not read a Julie Johnson book, especially D and D book, uh, but her books in general that I didn't just completely thoroughly enjoy um i think i realized this with this book that julie johnson is clearly one of my favorite authors uh and that she needs to do more stuff and they need to uh, even more so they need to open up D and have her write more D stuff she she is a great writer and it's fun to read and full and real smooth and reading the book felt like the characters that I so far have seen only in trailers. So I'm like, mm-hmm. only seen trailers, and they're like, okay, uh, she got the character. But it also felt a lot too, uh, like these are players playing a character. You're actually playing these. This is like a story from a game mm-hmm. rather than a story from a novel. And yet, it it doesn't like. It's clearly D and D. The story is clearly D and D. The setting is clearly D and D. The characters are clearly D and D. And yet, I don't see the dice rolling. Right. Um, and, and I, yeah. Well, yes, there's no dice rolling. You don't see, but the way the characters interact, the way that they talk, the that's the part that I felt was a oh, these are people. These are stuff that I would hear at, at the game table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. but at the same time, like, there are ways of doing D&D or game-based 
books that um, that it's too obvious. You know, the 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 way they're interacting with the setting, it's too clear that there's mechanics behind it. Even if you're not seeing the dice rolling, yeah. you're, you're still they're having a conversation where it's almost like when um, when you're playing the game and somebody says, you know, on a scale of zero to 42 my health is currently at about an 18 right as as a as a meta sort of cheat of talking about um their health right or their, their hit points um there's ways of, of writing game-based novels that i've definitely run into where it feels like the game mechanics are overly represented in the narrative um and that's not yeah. the case here it's like a game where you have a DM who the rules are guidelines, but the story is kind of like is important, but not necessarily in a way that the characters always win. Uh, and is a yes and right um, type of uh, DM. Right, and and it's also like when I play D and D, in my head I recognize or the version of the story that's happening in my head plays out differently the details are different because you kind of can kind of take the scope of all of the dice rolls and see what the results are and then tell a story that where that makes sense as opposed to a, a six second round by round okay you rolled this you did this much damage so you you stabbed him in the shoulder with the rapier and, and you sort of describe every hit, hit or whatever uh and it's a very different sort of description whereas in a narrative sense, I might say, oh, those hit points are, they've got you back on your heels, uh, or the character is back on their heels and, and their defenses are down, because I know that that's going to play up, you know, it, two rounds later when when they score a crit and, and whatever, that I can play off of that. But in the game, you don't know that. And so the mechanics can can show up overly much in the narrative uh, sometimes. But, that, but I thought Julie Johnson... Um, very expertly sort of said, no, 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 this is the narrative that is created through gameplay, but I'm not describing gameplay. Yeah. It's literally the way the most stories feel that you play the game, you had fun playing the game, and then afterwards said, don't you go about it, you tell the story of what you just played and what happened and stuff like that. But when you do that, you're 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 not saying oh yeah then I roll a twenty or or I roll a fourteen or oh no I rolled a four and missed the thing no no you're just telling the story and, yeah. and that's where the story comes in in game and that's what this book feels like or basically so you still have those interactions that oh the person said this yeah that this is operation distract the beholder. Uh, and then people look at him and they looked at me and said, yeah, yeah, I'll get a better name for this plan later on. Right, right. But, but and, and yet you you described like the banter, the the story, the type of, of, of things they're doing. Like it still feels like the kinds of stories you're crafting when you play D&D. Tracy, you were going to say something? I was going to say, and it's, it's very much like a, a campaign, but maybe even slightly episodic with it building on each other. Um, because you, like you were talking about earlier, we have a few different things are going on. One part of it is that whole staff business, but even before then, we have a few different adventures, um, like trying to save the, help the people in that town, and I forget what they did even before then, uh, where they met uh, Forge for the first time. Mm -hmm. 
That was the the knoll. They were they were in the tavern and they That's right, knoll thing. Yeah, knolls attacked. Yeah, no, there's sort of a, I don't know. There's almost two and a half, three phases of the story in that like it's the the first part is meet all the characters and the characters all meet each other, uh, or the members of the party all meet each other, right? And then um, the last part is and they have their their big adventure where they sort of become an adventuring party and and reluctant heroes if you will uh and then the middle part which is like when they kind of first form the party but most of that's kind of happening off camera and they're kind of talking about you know oh we we planned these things and we did these things and we went on these these heists along the way and they weren't really considered heroes except for in their own town because they they defeated the gnolls back in that that one time um so the, yeah you know, and, yeah and i was just gonna say real quick and Surprisingly, they mostly most of them meet in a tavern. Right. Uh-huh. Do they meet Simon in a tavern? No. So that's the only one. Oh, that's right. They meet him on the <laughs> island. That's right. They save it, Simon though. They do. Yeah. It, it it is well, okay. Let's go through the story because I wanted to just talk about how ironic it was. How, we're just talking about it here and there. In this um, yeah, yeah, we're kind of all over the place. So, so the story is framed around the main character. Edgin is is telling a story to his daughter, um, Kira. Yes, Kira. but the whole daughter thing does bother me a bit <laughs> because she's young enough that she's getting bedtime stories. But as we'll discover later on, she's also old enough that she becomes part of the the crew and the party and is going on heists and fighting monsters and that that juxtapose like young enough to to have bedtime stories but old enough to go on adventures is a weird place to, to be as a dad. From what I gather based on the timeline, she's about ten years old. It, uh, maybe a little. I thought it was like eight or nine, but I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. It was hard well, to tell exactly how she is. The first, yeah, the first chapter where she is when he meets Helga, she's a baby, and it's listed at the start ten years. Ten ago. years ago, so okay. she yeah. So it, so in the in the framing device, she's ten, eleven years old. Um, I would say for which means that in the yeah. in the main. Like when she becomes a part of the party and goes on the the, the quests and whatever, um, uh, at that point she's probably like what eight or nine. Probably, I I have a hard time imagining a father taking an eight year old on a dangerous, you know, adventure. Well, I mean, in our real lives, parents have to do that every day, right? Like around the world, is like, one thing. Take, like take kids to work, or <laughs> well, take kids to work, but also, I mean, people live in war zones. Oh, I mean, sure, but they don't live in a war zone. <laughs> well, but they don't have any other means of making money, and they don't have and and part of the the thing with it was he was afraid of letting anyone else take care of her. Um, and they do talk about that even in the book. Eventually, do. he does find a way for her to get a babysitter when it was when he felt things were too dangerous. Yes. But over time, they find that she is able, she's able to do it, type of thing, well, and she doesn't want to be away from the only people she has in her life. 
Well, right. And, and, and there's a little bit of the, well, she's going to sneak out and go on these missions with us anyway, so I guess we'll bring her along. And the, the parent in me says, that is not the response I would have had. <laughs> like, no, and no, no. The other, <laughs> and then the other thing to consider, right, is that part of the audience for this are kids her sure. age, and they would love to see themselves in this book. Yeah. No, I get it, and 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 I enjoyed her as a character. I enjoyed what she and I know, what she yeah, gave to and the I wasn't story. trying to be a jerk or anything to yeah. you. I know you know this academically, yeah. but also like as a parent, it's like there, there is know, a part man. of me that rejects the idea of bringing eight year olds on dangerous adventures to fight beholders. Yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> um, well, you see, she never was supposed to be that's... there. There wasn't but nobody she was, knew she was, was a beholder. She was supposed to be there. They didn't know there was a beholder. <laughs> well, no, no, but she wasn't supposed to be in that area. It was also Durden. She's not. She's actually not there for the beholder fight. She's well, that's true. They, the they, 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 yeah. She got out. That's true. But that was still felt awfully risky. Um, so anyway, <laughs> we still we haven't gotten past the framing device. Uh, so the framing yeah. device is as he's telling her the story of uh, you know bedtime story. Um, Again is a is a former Harper. Yes, who lost his wife, uh, and he's a the fact that he lost his wife, who's also a Harper, is also the reason why he's a former Harper because he decided this is way too much for him. Mm-hmm. Do we know in the book? I think we know in the book who kills his wife, right? I, they don't. I don't think they mentioned. They just say it was one of okay. the enemies he he gained. Through the Harpers. Um, And that's why he left the Harpers. Uh, And so when the story opens, really, he is an exhausted single parent with a screaming child who he he just doesn't know how to deal with. Uh, He goes to the tavern. He gets some stew. He gets an ale. um, And he falls asleep. Uh, And when he kind of wakes up having fallen on the floor... Um, uh, the character that we come to know as Holga has picked up the baby uh, who was left unattended while he was exhausted and and fell asleep. Um, That's actually the part that I wanted to go back and re-listen to. So I listened to it again this morning because it, like my first impression when, when I read it was it feels like he was poisoned and he talks about it almost like he was poisoned, like his enemies were getting to him or whatever. And the whole Holga like just happened to be there and caught the baby and then suddenly was very easily uh, inserted into their lives and became a member of the family or whatever, like seemed very easy and very like suspicious. And they never went back and explored like, but what happened there? So I went back and listened to it a second time and realized, oh, no, no. I've been that exa- exhausted dad before. I've fallen asleep holding my child. Um, I think that's all that they were trying to say. Like his first instinct was, oh, my gosh, something's going on. Something's wrong. But that was just because he was just waking up. And, you know, uh, and, and Holga was easily inserted into their lives because for the first time since his wife died, there was a respite. There was a there was a break. There was somebody else to help. And so he's just. He desperately wanted her to be daughter. Yeah, he desperately wanted her to be around. And we later find out her backstory. She was looking for a place to fit in uh, after having been exiled from her tribe. So it all kind of came together on a second. She was, yeah. 
She's an Uthgard barbarian from from the tribe of the Elk, which um, I believe, for those of people uh, keeping score, is the same tribe that Wolfgar from the Driss stories is is a, a member of. So she is of the same tribe as Wolfgar, which is not the uh, only person connected to famous D&D characters that we run into. That's uh, true. <laughs> so, so that's how the, those two kind of meet. And those two kind of form the central core of, or really those three with, with the baby who would grow up, become the central core of the, of the party, right? Uh, and then yeah. they, Holga ends up basically moving in. They they live together and raise Kira for several years. Kira's grown up a little bit now. Um, and they're scraping by and making ends meet and whatever. Uh, Holga convinces Edgin to go back to the tavern and perform. He's a bard, but he stopped performing when his wife died. Um, and so he agrees he's going to go back and, and perform, um, at the tavern, but, but, uh, Kira can't be there. He wants, you know, he would just, he wants it to be separated to, to try it out for once. And then he went and it went poorly. He forgot the lyrics in the middle of the song, um, which reminded me of my days in high school. when uh, as a freshman, I got up and sang a solo and forgot the second verse of, can you feel the love tonight, uh, on stage in front of, you know, hundreds of people. So that was we have we have a commonality know. there. I I forgot the um, yes Virginia there is a Santa Claus lines. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, it's yep. it's always great when you do that. Yep. Nope. That was awfully embarrassing. Uh, and then I didn't perform a solo at that concert again until senior year. So. Oh gosh. Um, but it went okay. I'm all right. Uh, but it reminded me a little of that, right? The embarrassment of like I'm supposed to be able to do this. I got up and and I flubbed it, right? Uh, but it was after that that he ran, runs into Forge and they decide to play cards and he quickly recognizes that Forge is cheating. Uh, and then he so he starts cheating um, and then it becomes a game where they both know that the other one is cheating and they're just sort of admiring the, the artistry uh, of, of the other one's scams and, and card tricks and whatever. Uh, and that's when the Knolls attack. Uh, Knolls attack, steal a bunch of stuff, run off. Uh, they fight him off, and then, um, oh, they, the Knolls stole some of their stuff, including his loot. And, and so, loot here is an instrument, not yes. the coins from the game. <laughs> yes. Um, and so they chase after the Knolls to their to their lair. The the two of them hunt down the Knolls to their lair, um, defeat the Knolls. Find out that the Knolls had um, had kidnapped a kid, rescue the kid, and kind of become accidental, like saviors of the town and heroes. Even though they're like, no, 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 we're just greedy thieves. Uh, we all we were just trying to get our stuff back. Uh, you know, we weren't really trying to save the day, and we accidentally bumped into saving this kid. Um, what I forget was the kid the neck the babysitter's kid or brother or something I thought there was like maybe even that, that yeah. sounds like a thing yeah it was it also gave us um one of the things that has stood out to me through the novel is that while edgen is the main character and he's sort of the the leader of the party 
I don't think we saw him at one time ever carrying a weapon. Um, you know, he oh. he he helped defeat all these gnolls, but he didn't use it use a blade. He he sent a swarm of sturges after him. Eric, yeah, he thinks on his feet, right? Right, Eric, you were saying something though. No, I, basically, yeah, I, I don't recall, again, yeah, using any physical weapons mm -hmm. to do any attacks. He's, yeah, things on his feet, he burrito, he distracts and all that, which is, honestly, ways I've seen bards play in D&D, &D, that's usually what they do. They, they rare, rarely... <laughs> well, yes and no, because you'll see bards in D&D... &D not do like weapon attacks very often that's a definitely a legitimate way to play a bard um, but that means they're probably relying more on their spells and this is one of this is the 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 gameplay the nitpick that gameplay of D, D that i had was um he's a bard but he really plays as a rogue with with performance skills um and i don't know if that's if that's consistent with other people's experience reading the the story as well, because he doesn't do magic, he doesn't do bardic stuff. One could argue maybe he occasionally does like the big team leader speech or whatever, and you could call that bardic uh, inspiration, maybe. But for the most part, he feels more like a rogue who has some ranks in in performance. You know. Well, yeah. I, I wouldn't say that he does like any of the flashy magic that you expect many D&D spellcasters to have, but probably in his speeches and his words and his cutting remarks and all that, he does. Maybe those could be considered magic from a bard? I mean, I was looking for it. I was looking for moments when, when he would say something or do something and we could maybe interpret that as um, him doing some sort of bardic magic Bardish, magic-y sort of thing. Um, I didn't catch it. <laughs> if he did, uh, and that was my my only nitpick. Other, uh, you know, was was that it was that, and, and originally the the introduction of Holga. But then I went back and re-listened to that, and it made more sense. So, uh, so they defeat the gnolls. They get their stuff back. They they kind of uh, forge goes on his way. Um, and does this thing or whatever uh and and then we flash forward in time again now Kira's a little bit older um they've started to get involved in doing these heist stealing things uh here and there um that's become their their way of making money holga and um holga and edgen um and sometimes Kira at that point. But somehow along the way, off camera, they described that um, they found a ring, a ring of invisibility and gave it to the kid so that she can come along and and both be safe and help them with like fake, fake hauntings, making things float and what have you. Um, and then we have the next big part of the story which is forge comes back and talks about how hey i there, there's there's an opportunity 
Uh, we all worked together pretty well a few years ago or whatever, however long ago it was with those knolls. There's an opportunity. Um, there's this like haunted island. This town keeps sending people out to the island and they keep not coming back. Um, there's a bunch of money involved. They meet the people um, involved and, and they offer to hire them to go out and investigate this island and find out what was going on. Um, they agree, but but Kira has to stay behind. Um Except that we then later find out that Kira does not stay behind. Kira puts on her invisibility ring, sneaks onto the boat, and goes with them. Um, and it turns out that the haunting of the island is actually the result of of a green hag using her hag layer abilities or you know regional control of of the the area sort of abilities. Um, uh, and it was ironic to me that um, I was just reading that part when they ran into the hag right after I had said something online about how much D&D adventures these days seem to really, really like bringing hags in. Like there's hags in half of the published fifth edition adventures. Um, not green hags. I think they're like all night hags. Um, but still, the fifth, 5e D&D has a preponderance of hags. And then I run into this part of this story. And I was like, oh, look, we're dealing with a hag again. Right? Um, but it was a bit of a breath of fresh air that it was at least a green hag. They were doing this whole nature thing. They were doing the poison ivy, like using the vines to grab people thing. Um, Kira was the first one to, to discover the hag invisibly because she snuck off, snuck off on her own while they were investigating things. Um, and one of the things they investigated was they found a half-elf sorcerer, uh, who is Simon, uh, who is our fourth member of the party, or fifth if you include Kira. Um, Let's include Kira. He's the sure. fifth. <laughs> he's the fifth. Um, but we later discover that he's not just some half-elf named Simon who's a sorcerer. He's Simon uh, Omar, um, or Omar, however you want to pronounce it, which is... Uh, they, I, I don't know that they ever name his relation, but they talk about how he's related to some famous great wizard of of um the forgotten realms um and what have you and that he's got this legacy to, to live up to do do you all remember did they mention who that ancestor was i know who it was because i've read all those books too but well i do remember they mentioned that it's elminster okay yeah because that's elminster's last name although it's really only mentioned in a few books uh really so yeah. So, yeah. so Simon is related to Elminster. So he's, yeah, it, it's, it's related. Right. We have no idea what, what the relation is, uh, you know, and honestly, I don't know that we've like, I've read all the Elminster books. I don't know that we've ever really explored the idea that, hey, you know, he has descendants out there. Um, you know, there there are other relations, blood relations to, to Elminster out there. The guy's been around a really long time. Uh, the odds yeah. that he wouldn't have distant, distant, you know, great, great, great grand nieces or whatever um, seems unlikely. Right. Um, and yet I don't know that, that that is an area of the Forgotten Realms that has really been explored before. Um, uh, that's not true. There is one blood relation that, that came up pretty prominently in some of those novels um, in, in a story thread that felt like Ed Greenwood wanted to explore over the course of, you know, 10, 20 years and then 
didn't get the opportunity to keep telling those stories. So, um, but yeah. So anyway, so so now you've got Simon, the sorcerer who who describes himself as relatively inexperienced and incompetent, and yet I note that in his very first outing with the party. He's casting third level spells. So he can't be that weak and incompetent, right? Because he cast dispel magic uh, in that first encounter. Yeah. So what? So he's at least fifth level spell. Right. Fifth so level. He's at least fifth level, um, which gives us a. Well, and, and that's one of the things that's actually kind of fun. Like, the party is challenged, they're not superheroes you know it's not going out and saving the world sort of of D characters um but they also come across as very comp- competent right um i like a story of incompetent people coming to their own but i also like a story of like here's intelligent competent people who know what they're doing doing their thing and there's still challenges out there that they can't, you know, that's why I like leverage is fun to watch, right? These are highly competent people that do cool things. Yeah, they do cool things. They sometimes go like, go over their head, but they know that they're going over their head. So they try to use their creativity to get that. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the feeling I got from the book. Well, and particularly when we get to the one with, where we're at right now that feel if suddenly feels like we, we're starting into leverage territory because it's all about doing good and helping these nice townspeople out although they do want the money so that's right. a little different their, their motivation <laughs> is different than than leverage ink is right they're not trying to do good they're trying to make some money uh but one of the things that comes out of this despite or uh, besides defeating the hag and they don't actually make the money they get back and the townsfolk are like um, where's the people you were supposed to save? Well, sorry, we found the bodies. They're dead. We didn't get there in time. Um, but we found out what, what was causing the problem and we got rid of it. So now the island is safe. And they're like, yeah, that's not what we hired you for, though. So they didn't get paid. Um, but that's when the five of them decided, hey, we all work pretty well together. We should just keep doing this. And they sort of became a crew. Um, I, you know, I keep calling them the, the members of the party, right? Uh, and, and in D&D terms, they absolutely are. But in also in other terms, they are a crew. Um, they are not heroes going out to save the day. They are criminals who want to put together heists where they can steal valuable things. And, and there's, I feel like they're not evil criminals, Right. They're not going out and just robbing anybody and everybody. They're not bandits out there robbing the local farmers. Um, They're picking their targets for we're going to rob from the wealthy because we know they can. They can they can lose it and it's fine. Like their first big heist where they first started doing this was um, somebody. Oh, the the the, this was way this was before the island um, when they decided to to steal back some of Edgin's stuff that he sold to the pawn shop. Uh, dealer yeah. who they found out or the, who they knew was a, a Zinterim agent. Um, so we're like, this is a bad guy and he's disappeared. His shop's just sitting there. I'm going to go take my stuff back and then they, they that's when they started that's hasting. The, even before the Newell uh, fight. So yeah, that was just yeah. Whole guy. Yep. 
Well, yeah, no, they're, they're basically they're basically sort of the equivalent of Robin Hood. Well, they're Robin Hood, except they have no interest in giving to the poor. It's just oh. steal from the rich, full stop. Yeah. <laughs> so, at, at best, most of them are neutral. I kind of get the the feeling that like alignment wise, um, Simon is probably good, but go, but you know. It's it's the the player at your table who made a a neutral good or or whatever character and everybody else in the party is just neutral and wants to do high stories and wants to rob people stories and so they kind of grin and go along I could with see, it. I could see Ed Gin being chaotic good. Yeah, I could see that. But even then because, I could see it well, so it's tricky. I think at heart, he's probably chaotic good, but he doesn't behave chaotic good through most of the book because that's largely what this story is about. Uh, and I feel like largely what imagining that there's going to be a dozen stories of Edgin over over the years, um, I feel like it is the the story of the the thief who's trying to get by and make money and and keeps being pulled into being a hero sometimes oftentimes against his own will. Uh, but he's got enough of a conscience to want to make right the things that the mistakes that he makes, uh, and, and and when he runs into problems, he goes ahead and and tries to fix them. Well, and he was originally a harper, right? Yeah, like he was okay with doing stuff for not making any money off of it, at least for a while. Right. That's why. That's why part of it is also why I'm saying he's good. Basically. Yeah, he's he's good, but he he's good with I don't know. Good with neutral tendencies if we want to go back to second edition. Well, the way that I, I, I read it is that he was a harper and currently he's doing these crimes and trying to make money because he wants to get away from the harper mentality and that's mm-hmm. one way he feels it. But at his heart, right, he always wants to help people. So it is basically he's trying to run away from his past but the past is just keep coming back to him and reel him back in into the life of adventuring and helping out people. That's the way I've interpreted his Edgin's character in this book. Yeah. So um so anyway, so they, they end up after the um the island adventure and fighting off the hag they realize they all work pretty well together they decide to keep working together and they become a crew who goes on a bunch of heists that all kind of happen off camera um until they catch word about um an eccentric dragonborn sorcerer wizard i forget uh, which well, one and and it's kind of key cuz this is simon's uh contribution because yeah. part of the reason Simon had gone on his own adventure to the island was to get uh, money up to help with this tip he had gotten from a friend about yeah. the eccentric dragonborn having this artifact that they could potentially steal and make a lot of money off of. That's right. That is key. Uh, there is a he's got a contact with um, with one of the the people who works at the eccentric dragonborn's um, estate. Um, on on so they get a layout and, and a schedule and kind of plan out a, a plan to get in there and steal this 
this highly powerful magic staff artifact thing um, that he trots out. He keeps throwing parties. Every week there's a new eccentric, crazy party. Uh, and sometimes they're themed and sometimes they're, they're you know, whatever. Uh, and, and at some point in the night, he always brings out the staff and does some sort of uh, magic with it and shows it off. And then he disappears for a while and presumably leaves it in the vault and, and, and then comes back out for the rest of the party. So they like, okay, and this we, is, oh. okay, no, you go ahead. No, I was just going to keep going with the story. So I was going to say, um, and, and we haven't quite got to it in terms of story you're talking about, but this is where there's the big tie in with the key to the golden vault. Because part of what ends up helping them is that their contact on the inside gives them this hand-drawn map of the entire, uh, oh. of the mansion for the party. Um, and that helps them prepare. If I, re I, I'm pretty sure I remember that correctly yeah, from the... you're right. I, yeah. didn't, I, I didn't make that connection to, to uh, Golden Vault, but you're right. It is definitely, like, if they, you could write up the adventure very much in the style of, of Keys from the Golden Vault... Uh, for what they did at the at the party yeah no you're right um so anyway they decide they're going to steal the staff it's this legendary staff people have been looking for it they've got uh, a forge has has a contact that he can sell it to um and so they 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 plan and they plan and they take their time and they're like we're gonna do it right we're gonna be careful um which is a little bit weird because oftentimes as is really the case in D D, right um there are parts of the plan and previous plans that they've had that were like, I don't know, we'll go in there and figure it out as we go, <laughs> right? Uh, um, and there's some parts of the plan that are like that. It's like, well, you two are going to go in as as servants uh, working at the place, and so you'll have access to these places, and we need you to kind of do these things. How are you going to do those things? I don't know. You'll figure it out at the moment, right? And these people are going to be guests, and it's a masquerade. Um, they waited for a masquerade so they could all sort of cover their faces because they had another contact they, they got invitations from um, and they didn't want that contact to necessarily recognize them. Um, Tracy, you looked like you wanted to say something. I was going to say, so this is where they start becoming professionals, right? Right. Before then, they're just like first level players. And now they've been playing for about three years. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're we're not going to just smash down the door anymore. Right. So now we're gonna we're gonna sneak in, and some people are gonna do this, and some people are gonna do that. And we're gonna keep an eye on things. We're gonna um, get the cow <laughs> to, to go in front of us in the dungeon. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, and and ultimately, um, you know, the plan is more or less happening, and um, the the staff makes its appearance and then it gets taken back and that's when they go after it in the vault and they find out that they get into the vault with all the riches and treasures, but they find out that the staff that's there is an illusion uh, and they manage to find a secret door and the secret door leads into a, a dark mirror of the estate that is that basically becomes the dungeon crawl of this Dungeons and Dragons story, right? Yeah, and just as they're about to send Kira off to be safe, they feel they realize they cannot leave. Right. They have to go forward in the dungeon. Right. They go down into the mirror uh, dungeon area and and get trapped down there. And so the only way out is through. Uh, and they go through, and it's a series of of puzzle rooms. Um, and the puzzle rooms are all related to the eccentric dragonborn's favorite things um, that they were supposed to have discovered in the process of of 
hanging out up in the dungeon. Um, and But then when the monster bursts through the wall, instead of saying, okay, we beat the monster, let's go forward, they decide to go through the hole that it burst through the wall and found all of the caged monsters that were back there, including the eccentric dragonborn who's apparently been trapped back there for years and then we find out that the eccentric dragonborn is actually the beholder that this this uh, dragonborn supposedly fought years ago and it turned out that the dragonborn lost but we didn't think the dragonborn lost because the beholder took his shape uh and his shape it, and and said like hey i defeated the beholder right <laughs> right uh, and he's been so he's been posing this whole time, and he he and we sort of find out that this whole thing about the constant like parties and that kind of stuff and the dungeon underneath and all that is because the staff is all about sort of mirror forces of positivity and negativity, and so the parties um, he uses the joy and the happiness from the parties to to repair this broken artifact. And then the misery that's created in the dungeon to repair the other half of the broken artifact. And it's almost done, of course, because of course it is, right? Um, the bomb is never diffused until there's you know one second left on the timer. Um, and so they find the actual staff and they, they manage to get a hold of it. Um, well, the Dragonborn manages to get a hold of it. And then it becomes a whole thing because then the Dragonborn and the rest of the party all manage to walk straight up back into the party... And the, the Dragonborn immediately starts a fight with the Beholder in disguise, and it puts everybody at risks. Uh, and, and well, yeah. Before before that the Dragonborn gets it, Simon is the one who grabs it to, to be able to make sure that it is safe, that it is right, and all that. So, just... yeah, no. Uh, um, yeah, it's fun. It's fun and interesting to see Simon sort of develop and grow as a character um, through through some of the things that happened there. I enjoyed that. Uh, but anyway, there's this big fight between the two of them, and they realize that the Dragonborn cares so little about the people and whatever that he's as much a danger as the Beholder is. Um, and they sort of they they arrange to destroy the staff mid fight so nobody gets it and and. Uh, Finishes off both the Dragonborn and the Beholder. Part of it too is because the Beholder has erected a force field around the house, so they're stuck inside. They can't leave until the Beholder is dead or takes down the force field. And so they basically, they basically, their mind is like, the best thing to do is actually help the Dragonborn to defeat the Beholder. So that's where they operate the plan, distract the beholder, and not die trying. Yeah, and part of it too is like the, the dragonborn without any help is not capable of defeating the beholder, which we already knew before he was imprisoned and, and weakened. None of them are, even together, are strong enough. The only thing that's strong enough is destroying the artifact and making it. And I think it's Simon that comes up with that plan, part of that plan, but it's like, that's it. No, we, should, we shouldn't do this. This is a horrible idea, but it's the only one that will work. Right. Uh, so they, they defeat the bad guys and um, quickly rush back and take some of the, the, the treasure uh, before they head on out so that they at least get something for their, for their efforts and everybody escapes and um, they live happily ever after because certainly no bad things will ever happen to them in the near future. 
Yeah, definitely not. In the in the confines of in twenty four hours. <laughs> yeah, in the confines of the 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 movie. Um, and I think one thing that's kind of important because I know we talked earlier about like being uncomfortable with Kira being there. And it turns out that if Kira wasn't there, they probably all would have died very early, both in on the island. They would have eventually died on the island, and they wouldn't even made it to the Beholder Dragonborn thing. But I think Kira was the one that was listening to what the Dragonborn slash Beholder had been saying at the party and remembered it, and those were the key clues to be able to get through the dungeon. Oh, there, there is no doubt that the story was constructed in such a way that Kira is absolutely necessary. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's funny because it even plays into her correcting parts of the story. She's just so detail-oriented that she remembers mm. those things, I think, is part of it. Yeah. I mean, it's all, I mean that's also a common trope of, of story. You know, anytime you have sort of an ensemble cast uh, like that, the, the storyteller, the, the author the screenwriter or whatever has to find some way to make sure that every single member of the group was absolutely crucial and essential to achieving their, their victory in the end. Right. Whether it's a D and D party in, in, in a novel like this, or, uh, you know, justice league where every single member of the justice league has to have, be absolutely crucial to bringing Superman back. Right. So, so I did, I did like at the party the drinks, the magical drinks that had uh-huh. mystical effect. Those were fun, and there and there was more shared world mention because uh, one of them was something about Volo, so they brought up yeah, some. That's more... the one that was the favorite of Dragonborn Volo yeah. Volo's Folly, I believe. Yep. So. Well, and and that's one of the like like I talked about at the beginning. I really enjoyed returning to a shared world where you can just allude to things, maybe give a line, like even the Zints, they mentioned this one pawn shop uh, owner was, or, or whatever, um, was a member of the Zints. They maybe gave the Zints, I don't know, a couple of sentences of description, but you didn't have to go into a, a lot of it, you know, enough that, that a casual reader would recognize what, what you know, who they were and, and the, have the important bits about it, but also where somebody who knows more of the lore has a deeper understanding of what exactly that means, you know? And, and I enjoy that. Uh, I enjoy being rewarded for my loyalty to, to uh, a setting in a shared world. It's also why I years ago, decades ago, picked my, my um, comic book world, my comic book universe and, and focused primarily on reading comics from that universe. Cause I like the idea of being rewarded for, um, reading a bunch in, in one shared setting so that I can understand things in more depth. It's fun. Any other sort of last thoughts, uh, finishing things we want to say about this book? I super enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I, I can't, I, it's hard to find something that would be, that I would say poor about it. No, I, I mean, my only nitpicky thing was I. Edgen is referred to as a bard, and he doesn't feel like a bard. He feels like a rogue that has instrument skills. Um, but who knows? Uh, I'll, I will keep following the stories and see how that develops and plays out. So, maybe it's a mixed level party, and he's just 
the beginning. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe he's just a really low-level bard, despite the fact that he has this, that he's incredibly competent and has this uh, history with the Harpers and somehow manages to survive all of these grand adventures and never pulls a weapon. There you go. <laughs> Which is a very non-D&D-ish way to be. Uh, I don't hate that that approach, but it's a very, you know, it, it was a little bit like um, what the last book we read, uh, Empire of Exiles. Um, that was not, it was a fantasy story, but it was not a, a, an action story, right? It wasn't, there were, there was almost no instances of people pulling blades and having sword fights. Um, that just wasn't the way things were done in that story or in that setting. Um, and so while Holga's running around with uh, an axe so big that Edgen didn't even realize they came in that size, as he described it when he first met her. Um, and, and you definitely have the, the D&D solve things through violence and hitting them with sharp metal things trope. Um, you also have some things that break that that trope. So, I mean, Edgen may not use weapons, but he still is an action character and you feel that in the book. Yeah. He does... Uh, yeah, it's interesting, and I and I look forward to seeing how it plays out on screen in two days when I go and see the movie. Which, for uh, people probably listening to this, is several weeks in the past. So, all right. Any other last thoughts? I was going to say time capsule, Jeff. All right. All right. If there are no other last thoughts, we're going to go ahead and call this the end of the episode. Uh, it is time to say goodbye. And I want to say thanks to our patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Special thank you goes out to Doug Palmer, Hyperlexic, Jill Sanders, Leonard Pelche, and Michael Harrison. Y'all help keep the lights on, and I appreciate it. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us, thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Dark Magic. That's Sarah with an H and SarahDarkMagic.com. Jeff is at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. Eric is on Twitter, uh, Eric M. Pack, E-R-I-C-M-P-A-Q. The show is at The Tome Show. You can also find us on Facebook, Patreon, and Discord. Watch us live as we record the episode on twitch.tv slash tomeshow. Show notes and other great shows are at thetomeshow.com. And that is our thoughts on Road to Neverwinter. Next month, uh, we will be reading... Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, Druid's Call. Um, gives us a little bit of the backstory of the Druid character, Doric, uh, from the movie. So, until then, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm on the wall.